Hello, this is William Fink, and this is the Christagenia Open Forum. It's January 31st, 2011, Monday night. First month of the year is gone already. Feels like it was Christmas yesterday. I thought I would talk about Genesis tonight. Again, probably for the third time in three weeks. So, you know, this is a huge topic, and there's always going to be a lot left out of any two-hour discussion of Genesis. That's just the way it is. A lot of sophistry has been read into the book of Jesus. And if it's not based on scripture, then it has to be discounted. I'm going to start with Genesis 1.1. I'll probably skip around a bit. And I'm going to talk about these things from, from a purely scriptural aspect. But I am also going to discuss some science in some places. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. Genesis 1-2 says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. A lot of people want to say that it should be read that the earth became without form and void, and they like to imagine some ancient, wonderful situation that was destroyed by some cataclysm for one reason or another, whether it be sin and judgment of God, or whether it be natural disaster, which would also be a judgment of God, right? Well, you know, that idea is, is quaint. And, and people love fantasies, and, and people love myths. It's one of the curses of our race. It's, it's one of the, the burdens of the inquiring mind. But it's not scriptural. You won't find any explicit support for the idea anywhere else in Scripture. If you don't find a second or a third witness for an idea, then it, is, it does not meet the test of Scripture. Now, Bertrand Compare, he looked to um, Jeremiah chapter 4. I don't remember the verses. It, it, verse 20-something it starts at. And, and it's talking about the turning over of the earth. But the context there is extremely clear. Context there is how bad it was going to be for the people in Palestine when the Babylonians invade. That's what the context is. That's what it's talking about. You cannot take Jeremiah chapter 4, as Bertrand Compare did, and apply it to some story you're going to invent, invent about Genesis 1-2. Something's not revealed to us, and, and we want to make up a story about it. That, that doesn't make us any better than the Jews. That's just the way it is. I mean, you, you might, it might sound nice and romantic, but it's not edifying. It makes us look like fools when we meet skeptics. Why, why, why make up a story? Especially when it's meaningless in connection with our core doctrinal beliefs, which should be the beliefs that govern our daily lives. I'm going to skip ahead. Genesis 1, 23. Well, let me talk about the um, fourth day creation. I'm sorry, Bible works is giving me. Genesis 1, 14. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made... I want to see the pattern here. The pattern is, let there be lights. And the response is, and God made two great lights, right? That, that's important to notice that pattern. Greater light to rule the day and a lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars too. Now, if these things weren't made until the fourth day in creation, and, and these days are really just representative of the stages of creation, and, and they're not, th this is not a scientific treatise. This is a poetic revelation 
that God created everything that we see. Since the lights which govern the day perceived by man in its literal sense were not created until the fourth day, and these days must be simply understood as simply ages or undeterminable periods of time and not literal 24-hour days. It's absolutely silly to consider them as literal 24-hour days because there's no sun and moon until the fourth day. But we can't take this scientifically, this account. We just can't. It's not a scientific doctrine, and it's not a story which attempts to explain reasons for the existence of everything that we see on the planet around us. I would like to skip ahead. Genesis 124. You see in the um, in, in, in the, the verses just before 124, we see a beast creation. And, and a lot of people would like to reckon the fifth day beast creation is dinosaurs or, or um, some kind of first primitive beast creation. We don't, well, yeah, you know, that's conjectural. That really can't be proven. It's, you know, a lot of people that would insist that this story had to be reconciled with natural science. But, well, that's nice, but if you make that insistence, you're always going to have a barrage of questions because that's not really the purpose of these verses. And because natural science as we know it, we have no real history of. We can make educated guesses as to the things we, that we dig out of the ground. Today, natural science is written by evolutionists. And, and evolution is just as much a religion as Christianity. In fact, I would say that there's a lot less evidence for evolution than for Christianity. And infinitely, uh, I can't pronounce that word, a, a, a very minute portion of evidence for evolution. Evolution is ridiculous. As, um, scientists that promote evolution control the scientific dialogue today. And that's because the Jewish humanists and secular, secular humanism is a religion of its own, the Jewish humanists have controlled the dialogue through the media. Other scientific voices, and we see this in the global warming area, other or sensible scientific voices are marginalized in the media, even though they probably hold a much more scholarly weight than the voices that are heard in the Jewish media. Say that the book of Genesis has to be reconciled with natural history is to say that the book of Genesis has to be reconciled with a, a very subjective science that basically has its framework written by the enemies of our God. That's who's writing our science today. Jews are writing our science today. Genesis 1.24 And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. And God made beast of the earth, and his after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. Now some people want to read, and, and the people that want to read that the non-Adamic races are created here in, in Genesis 124 and 125, that that is what this is describing. Those same people used to hold idea, and, and it's in, in their books, that this was creation of the other races occurred at Genesis 
chapter 1, verse 26 and verse 27. And when they were shown the folly of that, they fled to Genesis 1.24 and Genesis 1.25 for refuge. They assert that the non-Adamic people of the world, the people that don't have the image of Adam, God, that they're created in this beast creation. First, I would like to say that, yes, the word che means living. And that's the word that we see here where it says earth word for beast or che. Just because something is living and meets the technical definition of che, that doesn't mean that it's one of these kinds that Yahweh created here in Genesis 1.24 and 1.25. Every bastard, every single bastard, every production of man meets the definition of the word che as a technical definition. I would not blame Yahweh my God if I created a bastard that's in violation of command that these beasts that he created were after their kind. And kind after kind is the first rule of interpreting Genesis. If you go create bastards, don't blame them on, on our God. does not create bastards. Now, this word che as I demonstrated last week, appears in many, many contexts throughout the Bible, can only refer to animals, four-legged animals, burden. When the Septuagint was, um, when the Septuagint was first translated, 300 B.C., the Greek word chosen for che over 200 times was the word area or there. And a there is a wild beast. On four occasions, one of them being Genesis 1.25, it was translated Catanus. Catanus is a domesticated animal, like a cow, or a ram, or a sheep. Okay? The Septuagint translators usually translated that word che after the word there. And only four times they translated it into the word Catanus which is a domesticated animal. Usually they saw Che as a wild beast or a wild animal. And last week I also pointed out contexts in Scripture where Che definitely meant a wild animal. Now if you want to read the other races into here, there really isn't another witness. Except that on several occasions Scripture, we see that there are beasts of the field, or there are just beasts, not necessarily beasts of the field, referred to, and those beasts seem to have cognitive ability and hands and feet. Well, that is not a technical description. Wherever it occurs, it is a pejorative, wherever it occurs. It is like calling somebody an animal. We all meet the description of animal. When you call somebody an animal, you usually don't mean it in, in our culture and, and in most contexts in a nice or a positive sense. It's usually meant in a derogative sense. That is how the word che is used. And it appears in the law, and it says that any woman caught lying with a che shall die, and both her and the che shall be stoned to death. I'm paraphrasing, of course. All of this is off the top of my head. 
It's not making a technical, scientific, biological description. It's calling something not worthy of a name of its own a beast. That is how, when the men of Nineveh were told to repent, Yahweh commanded that both man and beast repent. And it's not using that word beast as a biological description. It's calling, that's a derogatory term for something that doesn't deserve a name of its own. It's calling that object a beast. Now, I'm referring to Jonah, and, and I'm sorry, I'm referring to um, the law. And very often, those terms, as we find them in the law, are not che. Those terms are the Hebrew word behemoth. So the people that claim that Che of the field is a technical description for the other races are wrong because most of the time, and maybe all of the time, and Clifton Emmerheiser has a list of them on his website, he listed every occurrence of the word Che in the context it appears in. And, and practically every one of those contexts cannot be talking about people of non-Adamic race. It's a paper on Clifton's website called A Study on the Word Che. And nearly every single occurrence is clearly talking about animals. In the, in the several places where it uses the word beast of the field, or beast of the earth, or just beasts, and it seems to be referring to iPads with cognitive abilities, the Hebrew word is behemoth. It is not a. Therefore, if Che were a technical field term, Che of the earth, Che of the field, and the um, word in Jonah, but which describes the other races, then the word in Jonah should be Che and not Behemoth. And the word in, in Leviticus should be Che and not Behemoth. But it's Behemoth. So don't let anybody sell you a lie and insist that Che can mean, must mean, the other races here in Genesis one twenty four and one twenty five. Because it simply does not insist that it refers to people of other races. That is an emotional assistance. I'm sorry, an emotional insistence. It is not necessarily scriptural. I have said in times past, and I would still maintain, that we don't, and, and I only maintain it, Clifton doesn't agree with me. Clifton, uh, Clifton would insist, and I can't say that Clifton is wrong, that there are no other races of, of hominids with cognitive abilities in this Genesis 124 and 125 creation. I cannot say that Clifton is wrong. But from a purely scriptural viewpoint and, and from a purely scientific viewpoint, I have never felt that I could 100% prove that Clifton is right. Well, I leave that gray area open. It's remotely possible that there was a, a, an original hominid man-type being that may have been considered among these beasts. Now, I leave that little gray area open, and Eli James would take that gray area, paint it into a broad brush, and run it all the way to the back of the Scripture. And that can't be done. Because when Eli James gets to the New Testament, he wants to turn those beasts into people and nations that are going to be judged by their deeds. All, all throughout Scripture... The people and the nations that are going to be judged by their deeds are the Adamic people and the Adamic nations, and nobody else, period. You cannot take beasts and end up with people and nations. You can take 
people and nations who mingle with other species, other kinds, and they could become beast people and beast nations. Yes, you can do that through mixing, but you cannot take beasts and end up with people and nations. No, I'm sorry, you can't do that. I meet a scriptural witness, won't find it anywhere. That leads me to Genesis 1.26. But no, 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 I want to talk about beasts some more, I'm sorry. Remember, I don't have a script to go by. This is all off my head. I'm just um, running with the ball, right? No, if you want to find beasts in the New Testament, and you want to see how they're, they're thought of by the New Testament writers, we're going to see them in Scripture from Jude 1.10. Jude is referring to fallen angels. Imagine that. I'm having a hard time with my um, Bible works here. I'll read from Jude 1.8. Likewise also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, Spies dominion and speak evil of dignities. Jude is talking about the fallen angels, if you go and read carefully. Jude is talking about the men who crept in unawares. Jude 1.4 Who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reading from the King James. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, the angels, and we're getting to this next, the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Who then talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, and he talks about going after strange flesh. Pursuit of different flesh is race mixing. Eli James has, um, has agreed to that many times. Likewise also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. At Michael the archangel, when count contending with the devil, he disputed about the bones of Moses, the body of Moses, First, not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, Yahweh rebukes you. But these speak evil. These meaning these people who are descended from these fallen angels, seek evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts in those things they corrupt themselves. Want to see the beast people in the New Testament? Who's talking about them? Who Peter, chapter 2, talks about the same people. Yahweh knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them that walked after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, and despised government, that's the same language Jew just used, presumptuous are they self-willed, and they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities, whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before Yahweh, but these... These angels, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they do not understand. When we bring the gospel to the other races, they speak evil of the things that they do not understand. When we talk to the Jews about Christianity, they speak evil to the things that they, of the things that they do not understand. But these, as natural brute beasts, 2 Peter 2.12, Made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they do not understand, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. That's the beast people of the Old Testament. Looks like the same beast people of the New Testament to me, and that's their fate. 
You want to convert them to Christianity? You want to teach them the gospel? You want to bring the law to them? You can't bring the law to them. They don't understand the law. They don't have it written in their hearts. You can't take beasts in the Old Testament and make them nations in the New Testament. Judgment of their nations. That's the judgment of the Israel nations. That's the judgment of Damic nations. It's not the judgment of the beasts. You can't bring the beasts into the light. They're bound in chains of darkness. I'm going to go to Genesis 3.1. I'm going to skip ahead because I'm going to continue to talk about this. How the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. Does this prove that the other races are beasts of the field? The beasts of the field? Oh, what we have here is an allegory. Serpent is a snake. That's the literal meaning of the word. We are introducing the serpent, who is heretofore not been introduced. If we go to Genesis chapter 2, and I'm skipping ahead because I'm going to talk about Adam before this is over. And we go to Genesis chapter 2, 8, and we read Genesis chapter 2, 8. Yahweh planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, meaning Adam, Genesis 2, 7. And out of the ground made Yahweh God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. This is important. Man is put into the garden first. And only then, only then are other trees. And everybody loves to point to these other trees and say, Oh, that's the races that Adam could eat from. Well, guess what? They're not made to grow out of the ground until Adam is put in the garden. We very often see this harebrained idea that Adam was put into a garden of people that were already there, that were good to eat and, and suitable for food, meaning that there were other white people already here. Eli, I hope you're going to listen to this. Well, Adam was put into the garden first, and then were the trees made to grow out of the ground that were pleasant to the sight and good for food. O tree pleasant to the sight and good for food exists before Adam is put into the garden. A lot of people like to lie about Genesis and play with your memory. And you stand there and shake your heads. I, I get caught with it sometime myself. You always have to go back to the scripture and look at the scripture and you see somebody pronouncing strange doctrines. Genesis 2.8 tells us there are two trees in this garden. It tells us that in the midst of the garden is the tree of life. And also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Joshua Christ says that he's the vine of life. He is the vine, and we the branches. Real simple. He's the tree of life. He's the word of life. Eli would agree to that. But in the midst of the garden is also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Already there in the garden. Yahweh didn't make it to grow out of the ground. It evidently introduced itself into the garden. That might be conjecture. But the tree with the knowledge of good and evil has to be the enemy that came in and sold, sowed the false seed in the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13. But is the world, good seed of the children of the kingdom, they were planted by the Son of Man, Joshua Christ himself, the tares of the children of the wicked, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. This must be this devil must be this tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, that definition fully intones that it's a race of people. 
a race of people who had at one time the knowledge of good or the experience of good and then they had the experience of evil these have to be the fallen angels who left their first estate that Jude was talking about Revelation chapter 12 ties all this together when it identifies the angels who revolted from God as being that old serpent the devil we have a race of fallen angels on this planet when Adam is placed into the garden they don't have to look like angels they had to come from those fallen angels now we're told that they're there they're never told how they got there except that there was war in space and Michael and his angels fought the devil and his angels and they were cast out of heaven and whether you want to read that as being a physical war in space or a metaphorical war in space mean and space meaning um just the planet and and um heaven being a righteous seat of government and and good under god well well that doesn't matter to me if you want to understand that literally or metaphorically it doesn't matter christ said i saw satan fall as lightning from heaven if you want to take that literally or metaphorically it doesn't matter to me what matters is that that had to happen before Adam was put in the garden and that's why this tree of knowledge and good and evil is already there Christ then in Luke chapter 10 connects at Satan falling from heaven directly to serpents and scorpions that he gave his apostles power to tread upon he wasn't talking about real serpents and real scorpions he was talking about racial serpents and racial scorpions he was talking about the children of that Satan itself fell from heaven all these things tie together scripturally the book of Enoch tells us that these fallen angels went out and mixed their seed with every kind every kind now the Bible only really gives us a story in Genesis chapter 6 about fallen angels mixing their seed with our kind and that resulted in the giants and for that reason Yahweh destroyed the old world in water Genesis chapter 6 doesn't tell us about Satan and and the enemy that the the um the fallen angels mixing their seed with every kind because it didn't happen in Genesis it had to happen before Genesis if it had happened in Genesis we'd have a record of it Eli James would insist that we have to reconcile the Bible with natural history oh I would say that we have to reconcile Genesis with the Bible and to hell with natural history the Jews wrote it if we had simply the raw data we might be able to interpret it in a manner that very neatly fits the biblical picture we don't get the raw data from the Jews it can be proven we don't get the raw data from 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 science we get very filtered subsets of data from science Enoch also tells us that the um, demons come from the spirits of bastards that's in the book of Giants I've quoted it it's on Christogeny or it's in my writing it's in um it's in the problem with Genesis 6 1 to 4 oh Paul tells us in two Colossians that um many of our ancestors humiliated themselves by worshiping angels oh guess what all the world's false religions which came to us through the other races or, or at least the Kenite races and, and some of the other races that were in um in the area of Mesopotamia those false religions Paul tells us very clearly in two Colossians came from the, the idea that people at one time had to worship the angels that's why in one Corinthians chapter 10 they're told that the things that the nations sacrifice 
a sacrifice to demons and not to God. All this comes together in Scripture. And we could see that it's very likely that many of these other races are the result of the mixing of every kind which occurred, according to Enoch, which happened, which was perpetrated by the fallen angels, the angels who left their first estate. I would insist that that is the original act of rebellion by those fallen angels against God. That's why Genesis account stresses kind after kind and the importance of that so many times. Only God creates and only his creations can corrupt. He made us with free will and part of that free will is that we abuse the free will that he gave us. And we see examples of that time and again in scripture. That is why, and this is very plausible, the angels that rebelled are kept in chains of darkness like brute beasts waiting to be destroyed. Eli, there are your beast people in the New Testament. They will always be beasts. Their very existence is a violation of the laws of Yahweh. Stop trying to justify it. Genesis 1.26. Let's talk about man. Let's talk about Cro-Magnon man first. This is a whack-job Jewish fable if I ever heard one. A real Cro-Magnon man. A real Cro-Magnon man has a brain cavity which is about 1,500 milliliters, and ours is about 1,300, the average white European, 1,350 in there. The real Cro-Magnon man is said by um, most accounts to have died out, disappeared, sometime between 22,000 and 11,000 B.C. 11,000 B.C. would be about 6,000 years before Adam, from reading the literature that I, that I have correctly. Yes. One source says they lived from 45,000 to 10,000 years ago. It's fine. That's still a few thousand years before the creation of Adam. You know, the Jews have really confused Cro-Magnon man because now they basically call any modern human Cro-Magnon. Many, many, um, that, that's been done for several years now, for, for maybe 40 or 50 years now. So the idea of Cro-Magnon has departed from those original men with slightly larger frames than us and, and slightly larger cranial capacities. And, and I, I would bet, I would bet if I had, you know, if I was a gambling man, I, I would bet that the most plausible interpretation of prehistory is that those Cro-Magnon men are the, are the fallen angels. I can't prove that. I wouldn't teach it as doctrine. That would be ridiculous, because I can't prove it. I don't want to teach anything as doctrine that I don't get out of that Bible. I don't believe Zechariah Sitchin. I don't believe Otto Muck. Eli calls Otto Muck hard science. That's a joke. All you have to do is go to Amazon.com, look up Otto Muck, and you'll see this. You'll see people that read this book also read Edgar Casey. Rick Von Donegan. That's the, that's the category that Otto Muck fits into. I wouldn't waste my time. I believe in mental hygiene. Eli believes in fantastic fairy tales that he weaves from all, these, all, all this special knowledge that has been discovered by these, that these incredible investigators. It's all Jewish fables. Biru, Zechariah Sitchin, Ron Wyatt. Now it's Otto Muck. No, I'm not going there. I'll stick with scripture. Genesis 1.26. I'm sorry, I'm on Genesis 2.4. Bible works does not go backwards in Linux very well. 
And God said, let us make man in our image. And I'm glad I read that because that's something else I wanted to talk about. You know, the, um, the plural, let us make man in our image. And we see that plural again, and, and Clifton just pointed it out. And, and I noticed it in a paper I proofread for him this afternoon. In Genesis chapter 11, I think it's verse 7, let us visit the, the man or, or whatever it says. It, it uses that plural again of God. That doesn't mean that we have more than one God here. That doesn't mean that we have angels perpetrating the creation. All of Scripture throughout the Bible talks about one God who made the heavens and the earth. And here we see a plural, and in, in um, Genesis 11 we see a plural. And that's only for one reason. And this can be established from... Uh, I could establish this from a book called Ancient Near Eastern Texts Relating to the Old Testament. It's a book that I refer to often in my writing. It's a very large book. Princeton, 1969, James Pritchard, editor. It's like a thousand big pages, and it has inscription after inscription of, of legal code, mythology, contracts, histories, from ancient Sumeria, ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Akkadia, the Akkadian language belonged to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Hittites even. That there's thousands of inscriptions in this book, and it was very common around the time, the middle of the second millennium BC, to use, and, and even much earlier than that, to use something called the plural of majesty. And Clifton's explained this in his writing. This is a plural of majesty. It makes a singular entity a plural in order to magnify it, in order to pay it more honor in your writing. And it's evident that the, when Moses wrote, and I believe that Moses wrote, um, Moses wrote Genesis, I believe that because Jesus Christ tells me that. I believe him. When Moses wrote this account, on several occasions he used that plural of majesty. And I'm sure that it was... Um, and by Yahweh, because I believe that he plants a lot of these things to test us. So that explains, let us make man in our image. Of course, God only has one image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air. This word man here is Adam. A-D-A-M. Out of response to this, this proposition, and we see the same pattern earlier in Genesis, where it says, let us make the cows of the, of the um, you know, the cattle and the beasts of the field. We see the same pattern. The response to this is, um, and this is 127. So, or and, however you want to read it, God created man in his own image. And that word for man is eth-ha-adam. Now, Eli would like to say that the word Adam is different somehow than eth-ha-adam. The only thing, the, the only difference is that Esha Adam refers to a specific particular Adam. And the word Adam can refer to one type of the race of Adam, or it can refer to the entire race of Adam collectively when it's a singular. It's a collective noun, or it's a regular noun. A Strong's Concordance breaks Adam into four categories. Strong's numbers 119 to 122. And a lot of people will point to them, Wickstrom, and insist that they mean different things. But if you tear away the vowel points that the Masoretes added in, in, in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, whenever the hell they put them in there, you'll see that it's the same three Hebrew letters, Aleph, Aleph, M, A-D-M, Adam. Aleph, Mem means blood. 
Am. That's why Adam means show blood in the face. When it's a verb, that's 119. Or ruddy, when it's an adjective, that's 122. Strong's number 120 is the noun, and Strong's number 121 is the proper noun. How do we tell them apart in Hebrew? Well, the Masoretes put little vowel points where they thought they should be told apart. But in Paleo-Hebrew, it's all the same word. They can't be told apart. Period. Context tells them apart. When we see Eth Ha Adam, it, it refers to a particular Adam. In this case, Adam the Patriarch. When we see just Adam, we have to read it in context. Is it an adjective, a noun, or a verb? And to do that, we need to know the words around it. There's no difference in these words. They are all the same Adam. When we get to Genesis chapter 5, and the descendants of the Adam of Genesis chapter 2, we see the same word that we see in Genesis 1.26. We see it three times in Genesis 5.1 and 5.2 alone. Of course, we know that they're the children of the Adam of Genesis 2.7. However, it's the same form of the word that we see here in Genesis 1.26. It cannot be fairly distinguished. Adam appears again without the Ha Adam, which is a um, S is is a word that that shows that the clause which follows points to a particular type of the the word, a particular person. Ha is the proper article. S Ha Adam means a particular Adam. When we get to, um, if you look at 1 Chronicles 1 in Hebrew, you'll see that Adam is the son, is the father of Seth in 1 Chronicles 1.1. 1, 1. And what we see in 1 Chronicles 1.1 1, 1 in Hebrew is just Adam. Same way it appears in Genesis 1.26. Two cannot be distinguished. If we insist on Eli's interpretation of Genesis 1.26 being correct, and we have to read 1 Chronicles 1.1 as F is the son of some Cro-Magnon man. There's no intellectual honesty whatsoever in Eli's harebrained Cro-Magnon theory. If we want to take Eli at his word, we have to imagine in Genesis 5.1 that it's talking about Cro-Magnon men. Because it doesn't say F ha Adam, it just says Adam. Eli's interpretation is ridiculous. Pro-Magnon men died out thousands of years, perhaps, before Adam was created. There's a huge archaeological gap. Unless you follow the Jews and you take their newfangled position that Cro-Magnon really refers to any modern man. And that's a real stretch of the imagination. The Jews define modern man as basically... Any biped that walks the face of the earth today that could put a pair of pants on and speak some rudimentary words. That's how the Jews define modern man. It's not how I would define modern man, and it's not how Christians should define modern man if they truly believe their Bibles. There's serious flaws with lies theory. Now, it's been said many times this past week that hybrids cannot reproduce. That is a lie. That's not only a lie, that is a Jewish trick. I'm going to explain why it's a Jewish trick, and we should never fall for it. First, if you um, it, just put in the um, phrase into Google, hybrid reproduction, 
you'll get 4.5 million hits. And you'll find that many species do have a problem with hybrid reproduction, but it's not impossible. There are many species whose hybrids have reproduced, have reduced reproductive abilities. There are some species who hi, whose hybrids have no reproductive abilities. And there are some species whose hybrids reproduce just fine. And sometimes they reproduce back into one of the forms that, that came from, you know, one of the types, one, one, of the, one, one or the other type of, of original parent. And that's true of some fish. Some hybrid fish, after, actually, after a couple of generations, reproduce back into basically their original form. Does that mean that we should accept hybrids back after two or three generations? Certainly not, because a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh forever. While those fish may appear to be their original form, who knows whether or not they truly are. I, I would doubt it. Uh, I think um, Yahweh will be able to tell them apart, even if our genetic scientists cannot. Hybrids reproduce all the time. Let me explain to you why the Jews want us to think that hybrids cannot reproduce. If hybrids cannot reproduce, and a white woman sleeps with a black man and has a half-mongrel child, and that child sleeps with another white woman, it's going to have more children. And that child sleeps with a white woman, a black woman, it don't matter, it's probably going to have more children. And we've seen the results of that in our society these past 50 years in large volume. But you know what the Jew would say? I'll tell you what the Jew would say. The Jew would say, you see that? We're all the same race. They're not hybrids. They're reproducing just fine. The idea that hybrids can't reproduce is a Jew trick. Don't fall for it. There are many reproducible hybrids in the animal world, in the aquatic world, and in seeds. There are farmers here that visit Christogenia and attend our forums that would attest to that. The idea that hybrids can't reproduce is a Jewish trick. Don't fall for it. Hybrids certainly do reproduce. Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female, he created them. That's the same language we see in Genesis 5.1. Some people want to make up sophistic arguments that because they're created male and female here, and they're created male and then female in Genesis chapter 2, that those must be different people. People that invented those arguments, why, have ignored the language of Genesis 5.1, which is the same exact language that we see here concerning the creation of them male and female in Genesis 1.27. And we know that we're the descendants of those people in Genesis 5.1. And we know that they are the descendants of that original Adam, Etha Adam, Genesis 2.7. I'm going to skip ahead to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. Eli would read this, and a lot of other people would read this, it's a closing, a concluding paragraph, this, this, this verse of Genesis 2.4. It's not a concluding paragraph. It's an introductory paragraph, and I'll prove it to witnesses. First, it matches the language very well of Genesis 5.1, which is also an introductory paragraph. And nobody argues that Genesis 5.1 should be a closing paragraph. 
Genesis chapter 4. More importantly, first word in Genesis 2.5. First word in Genesis 2.5 is and. That and is the Hebrew letter vav. It's called a hook. What it does is it hooks together what precedes it and what follows it. If the first word of Genesis 2.5 is and, and it has to be connected to the prior word, which is the last word in Genesis 2.4. Genesis 2.5 is not starting a new topic. It's directly connected to Genesis 2.4. Genesis 2.4, therefore, cannot be a concluding verse to the creation story of Genesis 1. Genesis 2.4 has to be introducing what is to come, just like the same language does at Genesis 5.1. Genesis 2.4 is an introductory verse. It is stating events described in Genesis 1.26 and 1.27 anew. It's a recapitulation. This is not a recapitulation theory. I would say it's a recapitulation fact. Serious things, serious Major obstacles lie in Eli James's path. Genesis 2.5 is one of them. Whether or not we want to see this as a repeat of the language in Genesis 1.26-28 and a deeper telling of the same story, which is certainly what it is, or if we want to see it chronologically, we have a problem because Genesis 2.5 says there was no man to till the ground. If there was an Adam around... I'm sure he could have tilled the ground. Kind after kind. Kind after kind means that the first type of our race has all the skills, intelligence, abilities as the second and the third and the fourth type of our race. We all have all those skills, intelligence, and abilities? Well, tilling the ground does not take a rocket scientist. And I would say that, yes, Yahweh can inspire those of us whom he wants to do his will. As long as he has an Adam to work with, through his spirit, and Adam will do what Yahweh wants him to do. None of us have our skills and abilities from ourselves. The Adam of Genesis 2-7 is Eth-Ha-Adam. It's the same exact form of the word we see in Genesis 1-27, Eth-Ha-Adam. Our God is not the author of confusion. He is not going to create different kinds and call them from the same name. Cro-Magnon theory just doesn't work. It is not biblical. There is no reason to ever think that this Adam in Genesis chapter 2 is a different Adam from Genesis in chapter 1. If we are vain enough to think that, then that Adam in Genesis chapter 5 also has to be a different Adam. And that is getting really foolish. We've been told that we're ignoring the Sabbath day. If we interpret this as a recapitulation of Genesis chapters 126 to 128. Well, if this is a retelling of Genesis 126 to 128, then we're not ignoring the Sabbath day at all. Because the Sabbath day happens after those events, after Genesis 129. However, if Yahweh is indeed still in his day of rest not ignoring it anyway. Eli James would like to take the day of rest and make it a literal day, I, I gather, and claim that it's, it's already passed. 
by the time the events of Genesis 2 take place, which he sees as chronologically following the events of Genesis 1. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to read through verse 10 from the King James. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left of us entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, and Paul's quoting Psalm 95.11 or 94.11, one or the other, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Where were those works finished? We're told explicitly that those works are finished in the verses leading up to chapter 2, verse 3. For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Paul is talking here about people of the Exodus and the opportunity that they had, if they had obeyed the will of Yahweh, to enter into the rest of Yahweh. To enter into the rest that he entered into when? After he created all of his works. Verse 10 cements this. For he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Verse 6, Paul tells the people, uh, Paul explains of the people of Joshua, Seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered in not because of unbelief. Verse 7, again, he limits a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Or if Jesus, meaning Joshua, in the book of Joshua, had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a day of rest to the people of God. This is explaining, both in our terms and in God's terms, his day of rest. Yahweh created his creation and rested on the seventh day after all his works were finished. To Yahweh, a day is as a thousand years, or just a hell of a long period of time. If we see no new works, no new creations, then Yahweh is still in that day of rest. And we're still waiting to enter into it today. People of Joshua's time, they see a day as a 24-hour period. And Paul is taking advantage of that and drawing an allegory and saying that they can, and, and he quotes the Psalms, in Christ we can still enter into Yahweh's rest. Because Yahweh is still in that period of rest. He never came out of it to make something else and went back into another period of rest. Paul is offering us an entry into Yahweh's period of rest, which was from all of his works. Genesis 2-3. So he's still in that rest. And we see no new creations. It's all allegorical. It doesn't violate the seven-day cycle Sabbath period of man in the Exodus. That's ridiculous. That's not what Paul is saying. He's talking about Yahweh's period of rest. And we can't put Yahweh our God on our meager little calendar. Lies, arguments against this are extremely sophistical.
even to the point of blasphemy. I have to go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, 1. I'm sorry, I'm going to go back to 2, 7. Remember, I'm doing this by the seat of my pants. And Yahweh God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. This is a repeat of exactly what we saw in Genesis 1.27. Man here is Eth Ha Adam. The man in Genesis chapter 1 is Eth Ha Adam. They're the same man. There is no honestly, there is no academically honest way to claim that they are two different men. Adam was formed from the dust of the ground. Adam was not formed from a pre-existing Cro-Magnon man. That can be proved from Scripture. I'd like to go to Genesis 3.19. The sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it thou was taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Now, if Eli wants to redefine that word dust as Cro-Magnon man, well, when white people die, I don't see a lot of us turning back into Cro-Magnon man. <laughs> if we're going to be honest with this word, we're going to treat it the same way that we saw it in Genesis 2-7. From dust we were created. Where do we go when we die? It might sound really silly. So is this whole Cro-Magnon hypothesis. Luke 3.38 says that Adam was the son of God. If Adam was some kind of reformed Cro-Magnon man, then Adam would have parents. He'd have Cro-Magnon parents. It doesn't say that Adam was the son of Cro-Magnon man. It says Adam was the son of God. He was the first man, Adam, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And Yahshua Christ is the last man, Adam. That's because... Only two Adamites ever are direct sons of God, Adam and Christ. The rest of us are mere replicas, or we hope to be mere replicas. If we're not mere replicas, we have a problem. Genesis 5.1, I'm probably skipping ahead for brevity's sake. I think that I've covered everything that I felt that I had to cover. This is the book of the generations of Adam, and the day that God created man. Are you going to tell me that the Bible doesn't repeat itself? Or is there a ninth day creation? Maybe this is a new book and, and it's, it's Eli insists that this is all chronological. This must be another creation. Which Adam do we come from? The first, the second, the third, the fourth? That's just, it, it's, it's such a sophistical and, and silly approach to scripture to imagine the Genesis 1 Adam, the Genesis 2 Adam, and the Genesis 5 Adam are all different Adams. They're all the same word. And in fact, in, in this, the, the generations of Adam, that's not Etha Adam. That's just plain Adam. In the day that God created man, you look up the Hebrew to that word, it's just plain Adam, just like it was in Genesis 1.26. The likeness of God made he him. Male and female, he created them. That sounds just like Genesis 1.27, or, or 1.26, or, or Genesis 1 anyway. I, I forget already, I'm sorry and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. That day when they were created, is that a literal day? Of course not. Because this is talking about the creation of our race, just like Genesis chapter 1 was talking about the creation of our race. We were created male and female in that age. 
it just makes me laugh that people like Eli want to use that word day to mean a day when they want it to be a day and an age when they want it to be an age. Book of the generations, plural of Adam, in the day. That means it has to be interpreted as an age, just like it is in Genesis 1. It's an age. Genesis 1 and Genesis 5 use the same language, the same Hebrew words, to describe the same creation. The creation of our race from Adam the first patriarch, and it's important to remember that no tree, no tree was in the garden that was good to eat until Adam was put there, until the creation of Seth and his descendants. It's all the same day. Three times we're told about the creation of the same race of people. It's not three different races of people. That's just stupid. It's not Cro-Magnon man and then Adam man. That violates kind after kind. Yeah, Cro-Magnon man is real close to us, but we aren't quite Cro-Magnon man. Not the original Cro-Magnon man. The Jews have taken care of that, and they've smudged that distinction up so that they could just label any modern man Cro-Magnon man. I'm not following the Jews. I'll be damned if I'm ever going to follow Eli James's fairy tales. I'm going to take questions. I think I got all my important points in. I'd like to say one more thing on, on this racial issue. Leviticus 5.1 reads, And if a soul sins and hears the voice of swearing and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of it, if he does not utter it, then he shall bear his iniquity. That's why I did what I did last week. And Eli, over this past weekend's programs, proved me entirely correct. That's all I'll say. This is an open forum. Anybody wants to talk, questions, whatever, please do so. I, I probably missed some things, right? Hello, Munich. You're a long time no see. How do you do? How's it going? Well, <laughs> I have done pretty much nothing except shovel snow. But, well, let's stay on the topic, right? I, I mean, I would appreciate no, it. There's not much. Hello, Robert. Um, yeah, go ahead, Robert. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be a prick. I, I would just like to stay on this topic and, and see if, um, you know, there's other people that want want, want to say something that might have some input. Yeah. Hello, Bruce. Yeah, Hello, have, Robert. I did, have a, I did have a question on this, and um, it concerns the, uh, the the time time steps for at least the trees in the garden. I'm not really sure how you can say one way or another whether those trees were put there before or after Adam was thrown in the garden. I don't get that from the context. Is that in the Hebrew or the Greek? Well, it says, I'm going to go back to it. Because I read it from the versions I have here, and I couldn't positively tell. It says, and, and, and the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. We can't assume that the trees grew before the man was put in the garden. Because the man was put in the garden first, in, in Genesis 2.8. The trees are made to grow in Genesis 2.9. Okay, but then how can you assume that the tree of knowledge of good and evil was there before? Well, because the tree of knowledge of good and evil is not growing in the garden. It is simply in the garden. And if we go to the parable of the wheat and the tares, Christ tells us, that the enemy that sowed the, the good seed, the bad seed, is the devil. And, and that was done as soon as the, the wheat was planted, the tares were planted. So those people had to be in the garden first. I understand that that's circumstantial, but that's the only evidence we have.
Yeah, I find those arguments with the trees a little bit difficult one way or another. I mean, to, to, to me, it was, it's evident that the serpent had to be there. Absolutely. I, and I he is a part that of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. But using this one verse doesn't, doesn't distinguish to me that there were... Well, that's uh, why the only place we have to turn is the New Testament and, and the testimonies that I gave there and the Book of Enoch. I guess what I'm saying is I couldn't tell one way or another whether there were more, more quote, type Adamics trees in that garden uh, versus whether there weren't. You know, well, well, you know, a lot of people wanna, want to say that the trees that are pleasant to the sight and good for food are other Adamic people. And I would not argue that, all right? Seth had to get a wife from somewhere. It might be talking about the Seth line. It doesn't matter, Robert. We have to understand that Seth's wife was acceptable to Yahweh. However, my point is that we can't imagine from Scripture that there were other races of white people there for Adam and his descendants to mate with because the trees that are pleasant to the sight and good for food are not growing out of the ground until Adam is put in the garden. I guess I agree with you. I just, from the one verse, I, I wouldn't be able to put one, put it one way or another. But, well, right, but the scripture surely does not support the idea that these trees were already growing before Adam was put in the garden. Scripture says the opposite. And yes, we only have this one verse to go on. I have a hard time, I would have a hard time doing a bunch of doctrine from one verse, but that's... Well, you, you know, I'm only refuting the people that like to make up a story from the one verse and hope that you haven't read it right or don't remember the way it reads. Well, that's what I would say is the same thing, was exactly what you're saying. I was saying that if you're trying to put together a whole story from one verse, you're you're out of it. Well, also the uh, mention of Bill about Genesis, the first chapter, kind after kind, is uh, all running into that whole uh, expression written down. Uh, in all accounts of the same thing, kind after kind, uh, points to these trees being uh, springing from the ground only after Adam is created. Yeah. Well, there's no disputing kind after kind. And so those trees that were pleasant for the eye and good for food have to be kind after kind. I mean, that's natural. That's Yahweh's laws of creation. I guess how do we distinguish them from the tree of life then? Are they all trees of life too, Bill? Oh, holy, the the um the tree of knowledge of good and evil? <laughs> no, 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 no. There's the other trees, and then there's the tree of life. Oh, there's only one tree of life, and that's Christ and and his race. Okay. So I guess my problem here is what, what what's with these other trees? What are but those other trees? May very well have come from Adam, right? Okay. We don't know. We don't have every detail, do we? Did Yahweh create wives for Seth and, and his descendants? Did they, did they um, marry their sisters? What does it matter? We have to accept that we don't have all the details, and we have to accept that whoever Seth married was acceptable to Yahweh. Okay, so these other trees are acceptable. They just didn't make it to the end. It's, it's kind of something you could kind of put together. What 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 do you mean? Why why wouldn't they make it to the end? Why why would there's a lot of there's a lot of branches of the white race that didn't make it to to this period that were overrun by other races that mixed themselves in. Yes, and, and Yahshua says that the Assyrian will be in a resurrection. Queen of the South will be in a resurrection. They were white people. 
they weren't aliens. They were white. They they were as white as um as any of us are. They were as white as anybody in Europe today. That they were um other branches of our race that were just not selected by Yahweh for and promised their preservation. There'll be in a resurrection. Where Christ says in Luke chapter 11 that the men of Nineveh will rise up in the resurrection and judge this race, meaning the Jews. That's exactly what he's talking about. And as Clifton has often pointed out, Adam married himself, right? Bone of my bone. That's even closer than a sister. No, it's the same kind of language where Yahweh makes the uh, covenant with us through our father, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, where he'll, he only, Israel... Out of all the nations, he's known and he speaks of Israel as his bride. And, you know, we're many members of one body, the head being Christ, the tree of life. It's all pointing in the, the, white, the white direction. Or right, right, same thing. Oh, we have to have something else here. I mean, I ran my mouth for an hour and a half. That was, <laughs> that, that was a lot longer than I thought I was going to go. I missed oh, the earlier it was parts. very simply put. Well, I, I've always had this problem once I started reading the scripture for real, you know, and not just listening to somebody else. Is the, the part where I've mentioned before, and there's arguments against what I think, um, about the two parts of Genesis 2 where it talks about uh, what I compare to the golem man, you know, the man made of dust when everything is already created. Here we have him creating this man of dust. I could think if we take that out, it would work pretty well. And the other part about... It's retelling the same story, Ron. And why do you call him a golem, man? Why do you talk in Jewish paradigms? Come on. It doesn't have to be redone again. The dust just represents the the elements of this planet. That's all it represents. It doesn't have to be a golem, man. It's It's an allegory. We are made of the elements of this planet, right? We, are, we imagine our spirits to have come from above, right? I mean, that's what we're told. Out of this world. All right, I didn't expect that to draw total silence, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, if nobody else has any input, I'm just going to end the recording and, and leave it at that. Oh, I did want to I did want to ask the question... Sleeping, you'll have to um, listen to the tape. I'm not going to repeat myself. I mean, I, I offered the, the most I could from Scripture without making up any fairy tales, as some other people do. They would rather make up fairy tales and, and pretend to understand these things. And, and I would think that we have to follow the Scripture and live with the Scripture that we have. And yes, I, I believe I established the creation of the other, the other, the non-Adamic hominids of the, of the world. That are not created by Yahweh, you mean? Yes. How will that conflict with uh, John 1 where it talks about... Uh Oh, God made everything and, and God did... Oh, let me go... Oh, okay, I wanted to read this and I forgot about it. Oh, okay? Okay. God made... John 1 says God made all things that were created, right? right. Let's read 1 John chapter 4. And I'm going to read it from the King James Version. Bible works will treat me right because it's not treating me very nice. I'm going to read from 1 John or 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit. Try the spirits whether they are of God. Now, that word of... Is the, he, is, is the Greek preposition ek. And the word ek is defined out of. I, I very, uh, or from. Yeah. Now, the, the preposition ek, in its basic meaning, denotes source or origin. Well, very often, because of that, in my translation, you'll see the word from of. And that might seem repetitious, but it is really designed 
um, to explicitly state the purpose of the preposition, right? When it's used with a, with a noun of the genitive case, which, which can mean of by itself, okay? Ek, and then the noun of the genitive case means from of that object or thing or person. What is a genitive case? It, it indicates the possessive in Greek. It also indicates source or origin or, or, or possession. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of, ek, from of, God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby, O ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh of God, is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is all that preposition, ek. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world. You are of God, little children. And that's the preposition, ek. And you have overcome them, because greater is he in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, the society. And that's the preposition ek. They are of the world, therefore they speak of the world. And the world hears them. John is saying that there are people whose origin is of God. They're his children. They believe his word and follow it. And that there are people who are of, whose origin is of, the world. When you create a bastard, you can't blame that on God. I'd be able to blame it on society. I think you should blame it on yourself. But that bastard has its origin in the world. It does not have its origin from God. There are people here on this planet whose origin is from of the world. There are people here on this planet whose origin is from of God. I says, every plant my heavenly Father did not plant shall be rooted up. Eli James says, every plant that Yahweh didn't plant shall probably be given bus fare. Eli James is preaching a different gospel. Is that understandable? I can see it from your view, um, but I can't figure out uh, how I could uh, otherwise uh, explain the, uh, the creative power of something that come along that's, that's different from or even opposed to... Uh, well, we have a creative power. It's not really a creative power because we can't create anything original. We can only reproduce and bastardize or change what's already here. Like procreation, you mean? You're assuming the other races are an original creation. That's an assumption. The Bible only explains the original creation of one race and a bunch of beasts. I quoted the book of Enoch and, and explained and explained from Scripture, and tied all these things together, the origin of many of these other races is most likely with the fallen angels. They are corruptions, corruptions of themselves, and corruptions of what they found here when they fell. And to those who are of the world, this is all foolishness, like Paul said. <laughs> oh, well, yes, Mark, that they resemble us. The more we mix it with them, the more they resemble us. I, I mean, the American Negro... It is a, um, a total product of mixing. Mixing with Jews, mixing with us, mixing with each other. They don't look anything like the African blacks do. Some of them. 
Most of them don't. Most of them don't look anything like any single tribe in Africa. And all those tribes in Africa, they all recognize each other. And they all discriminate in favor of their own. And you can't take, not 99% of these American Negroes, you can't take them back there and have them fit in anywhere in, in any of those, those, um, those, those distinct tribes. Oh, if nobody wants to, t if nobody wants to come on and ask any questions or or discuss anything or give any further insight, I'm going to shut the recording down. Oh, and, can you um, hear me, Bill? Yes, Bruce. Can you hear me? Oh, I I had a question in regards to uh, the ju uh, Judaizing the scriptures uh, where it speaks of of the uh, you know like Eli was suggesting that you and Clifton are uh, terrorists because of the, you know, the, um, just pointing out the scripture, but the destruction of all of this, uh, plant, all of these plants that were not created by our father Yahweh, that's not on you, Clifton, or any of those who are, um, Embracing the, 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 well, I would say it's a rat, it's not so much radical fact or truth of scripture, but it's just Yahweh's supremacy that his promise states that he will, um, uh, cast them into the lake of fire. And that's, they, they, you know how they display like Yahweh's a, a, a God that's going to torment these, these non-whites for eternity. What I was wondering if you could. Uh... We're told that everything that that Yahweh did not create, everything that offends, will be removed. Every bastard will be removed. Eli says we can send the Mexicans back to Mexico. Yahweh says every bastard will be removed. If Eli James or anybody else, for that matter, is ashamed of the Scripture, then I feel sorry for them in that day. I would rather die than deny the scripture. That was the trial of the martyrs. We all have to pray for the strength that we never have to... Well, first we all have to pray that we're tried, that we never have to deny the scripture. Second, we all have to pray for the strength that we never deny the scripture. Eli is already denying the scripture. It says what it says. People in British Israel and the genteel Christians don't like that and we can't widen our appeal. Well, right, because narrow is the way to righteousness, and wide is the path to destruction. Fear not those who could kill the body, and after that, there is nothing they could do. Mm. And if Eli wants to water down his doctrine, and if Maui Patricia wants to follow him, then they deserve their fate, and Yahweh will decide that too. But I'm not going to have anything to do with them. Because I'm not taking that, that that little gray area back in Genesis and, and using that little gray area to extrapolate beasts all the way to the Revelation and turn them into nations and people. He said they're men who will be judged by their works. Beasts in Genesis, they're men in the gospel, and by Revelation they've been upgraded to nations. Right. Well, if they're beasts in Genesis and the laws of Yahweh say kind after kind, then guess what? They're beasts in the Revelation. And I just read what was going to happen to the beasts, in, according to Jude and Peter, and that's the way it is. We cannot be ashamed of what the Scripture says. Scripture, Christ divides the world into two groups, sheep 
and goats. Eli is trying to use this to prove that somehow the goats are going to be judged by their works. Well, let me tell you something. Goats are put on the right. I'm sorry. The sheep are put on the right and the goats are put on the left before they're judged. And then Yahweh tells them, and they're separated by kind. They're not separated by believers and unbelievers. They're separated as nations. They're separated as ethnicities. I kind. And all the goats go on the left. And I don't see Christ saying anywhere in there that, okay, you were a good goat, so you moved to the right. All the goats go into the lake of fire. That's just the way it is. That's what the scripture says. I don't see Christ saying that when he returns, that the angels are going to bundle the tares. And, oh, you were a good tear, so you go over here with the wheat. No, that's not what the scripture says. Eli is trying to do that. But can't we just bend it and twist it a little bit, Bill? I'm just kidding. So they have two divisions where the sheep and the goats are divided, and then the goats are further divided. Okay, you were a bad goat, you were a good goat. Exactly. And that's not the division of Scripture. Then they'll hire a, a, a really big goat as their attorney to sit there and argue some, some little hair of, of difference between the bad goat and the good goat. I could just see that. And in addition to that, it's talking about sheep and goats, and it's not talking about beasts. Oh. Of course, the sheep and the goats are, from the human sense, are they kind of the... They're not the same, man. Yeah, they're the same as... They're all beasts, right? So we're all beasts. No. We're sheep. We know exactly who the sheep are, and everybody else is a goat. But the goats have... uh, The sheep are like Israelites, so-called human beings, right? And the goats are what? Like the the Edomites, the Canaanites, the Jews, that are so-called, look like, quote, human beings, unquote. So the goats and the sheep... From looking at them from like an animal view, they are not exactly like sheep and horses. They are somewhat the same, and but they look the same, but they're not at all. The same. Well, well, of course, but it's an allegory, right? It's not a te- they're not technical descrip- descriptions. And yet, and yet uh, what I put up, I think, last week was uh, the goats are, are uh, uh, sort of troublesome makers. Even as goats as just goats, apparently, they are just troublemakers, whereas the sheep are very quiet and very uh, 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 polite and obedient, but the goats are always out there chewed up stuff and causing trouble. Is that right? I've never worked with goats, but I remember reading that about how goats have this personality problem. Okay, do I look like a shepherd or something? Well, you're you're talking. (laughs) I I mean, um, I, I don't know much about farms, right? I don't either. I was hoping maybe someone here who had some experience working with sheep and goats and could give us a, a genuine comparison of at least the literal sheep and the literal goats that we actually see in the fields. Because my understanding of some reading from others who have knowledge of it is that the goats are not easy to get along with. And sheep are too docile, I would gather. Yeah, a little bit too docile, yeah. And yet, uh, they have four legs. They're kind of short. You know, they have a little bit of hair. And uh, uh, and they have maybe not about horns for uh, um, sheep, but goats I think have some. Maybe that's where they get their troubles. But if someone did not understand the goat from a sheep, I could see where they could they get confused. And if they don't understand the spiritual goats from the spiritual sheep, I could see where they could get confused there too. But well, Eli called this book "The Secret of Atlantis" by Otto Mach. He called it hard science. And, you know, I haven't read it, so I really can't judge it, but I could tell all I need to know what right here. Customers who bought this item also bought Edgar Casey on Atlantis. 
Survivors of Atlantis, Their Impact on World Culture by Frank Joseph. History is Wrong by Eric Von Doniken. Ancient Aliens by Season 1, something like that. And The Destruction of Atlantis, Compelling Evidence by Frank Joseph. That's all I need to know. Oh, Earth Upheaval in Sky by the Jew, Emanuel Velikovsky. Oy vey! Worlds in Collision by Emanuel Velikovsky. So that's the kind of company that keeps, um, that keeps a shelf full with Otto Muck, right? Along with Otto Muck. And Otto Muck, I would think, is probably not hard science. Well, Bill, before we get back to Chariots of the Gods, and <laughs> I just want to get this summed up in my head because I think we talked about this the other day. And we're basically saying that what we're classifying as beasts of the field, um, they may or may not be pieces of an angel DNA with whatever was on the earth. Right. There's also a possibility that there may be some sort of beasts of the fields that exist in some of these areas that are still somehow formed by Yahweh. We don't know that, though. But, well, it's highly unlikely knowing the history and the practices of these other races of people, even in their aboriginal condition. But it's still, I, I can't prove it. I, I don't know if it can be proven, so I would never rule it out entirely. It is a small gray area of scripture. However, there are always beasts. It can't be anything but beasts because they're not Adam. Oh, All right, Bill, don't forget David Icke. People who bought Secrets of Atlantis also bought And the Truth Shall Set You Free, the 21st Century by David Icke. Yeah, well, I want to get off Eric Tondonigan and David Icke and all that other stuff right now. I'm just trying to sum up this, this stuff in my head here. The last thing would be that when we're defining a nation, we're defining either something that is purely Adamic or a bastard from an Adamic. But, well, yes, that's the way we see the nations in the New Testament. We see the nations of Genesis 10. A nation, yeah, you know, the pure term, um, nation, as you would, ethos in, in Greek, the purest definition of the word is a company of men accustomed to live together. Okay? It's a group of men in, in Greek who live together and in a community. And that's considered to be an ethnos. And those ethnoses evolved into city-states, which evolved into the organized nations that we see by New Testament times. But we consider today, we'd still consider today Esau, Edom, the Canaanite Jews as a nation. Right. But none of these other races can ever really meet that description, the biblical description of a nation, because the context is always within the context of the families of Genesis chapter 10. And in several places in Scripture, it doesn't say the, the nations, but it says the families or the patriarchy. And in order to have a patriarchy, you have to have a, a common patriarch. In order to have a patria, you have to have a patriarch. And, and if you're not a, a, a part of that Genesis 10 collection of patriarchy, that's plural for patria, well, well then you don't have a patriarch in the Bible. If you don't have a patriarch in the Bible, I would say that your name can't possibly be written into the book of life. Because the Bible is the, the reflection of the word of life, which is Christ. I didn't expect that to draw complete silence, but that's all right. Well, I was hoping that uh, Brian would have Brian, something to say. You know, Brian would go on to his, uh, his Eric Von Donegan stuff now, or uh, <laughs> Bill Akoski. 
Lost Technologies of Ancient Egypt, Christopher Dunn. Final, se final events in the secret government group on demonic UFOs in the afterlife, Nick Redfern. Well, in that spirit, I changed my avatar. Hmm. That seems to fit in with... I can't find your avatar because I can't figure out what name you're using. <laughs> Interdimensional Universe, The New Science, Philip J. Imbrogno. Imbrogno. That's a fake name. Oh, I found you. So what the, Jews can't, what the Jews can't understand, they call it a demon, right? <laughs> oh, okay, we got a, an old Air Force flying saucer. What the hell is that supposed to be? Yeah, I decided to to, uh, to give myself some royalty uh, today. <laughs> is that supposed to be a UFO or something? Yeah, it's some stuff that the Air Force was working on. <laughs> and what happened to that? I'm sure it crashed like a lead balloon. <laughs> well, actually, it, it, it flies, believe it or not. Yeah. What's it? Well, how's it propelled? It flies like an aircraft. It's jet. Oh, okay. They they tried to make a fake it UFO. It doesn't spin or anything. It just goes straight. It's like a flying wing with circle instead of uh, uh, elongated. Yeah. No wonder we see these goofy things. Now, what's that behind it? Is that a well, bigger one? Just, that's a bigger version. <laughs> And where are these things? Area 51. I don't know where they are. <laughs> <laughs> They're in La La Land. I think that's Ames, Iowa in the background there. It may be. It looks like a building over the far left there. Like one of those old barracks of some old military place. The cornfields back there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to cut this recording. Two hours is long enough, and we could head to the open house, maybe. Oh. Yeah. Yes, no. Okay. Then we'll start okay. really talking. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, unless someone else has a great question. Do we dare?